You're listening to The Butterfly Effect Podcast, episode number nine. Today, I'm sitting down with Amy Smith-Morris, or as some of you may know her as, Amy D. PharmD. Amy, a cancer pharmacist turned cancer survivor, is bravely sharing her story with the world and speaking the truth about both sides of cancer. This episode of The Butterfly Effect Podcast is sponsored by The Sweat Effect. Are time and cost playing a role in your ability to get an effective workout in? Are you overwhelmed by the thought of joining a new gym, but need direction on how to move and what exercises you should be doing? The Sweat Effect is an online fitness program designed with all of those things in mind. For only $25 a month, you receive access to an exclusive private Facebook group where all of your warm-ups and workouts are given to you with video instruction on how to move properly while getting an efficient workout in. Visit thesweateffect.com for more details on our programs and services. Last Straw is Canada's reusable collapsible straw. Their mission is to reduce the use of plastic straws by providing a convenient and stylish alternative. Small enough to fit on your keychain, you can bring your last straw with you everywhere, or if you're like me and don't want coffee stains on your teeth, this was my solution. Receive 25% off your purchase at laststrawcanada.ca by using promo code SWEATEFFECT25. Use of the promo code goes towards supporting the podcast so I can continue to bring you quality episodes like the one you're listening to today. This is the Butterfly Effect Podcast, and I'm Ashlyn Newlove, tackling everything from fitness, nutrition, business, life, ice cream cones, and everything else in between to help inspire people to make one change that causes their ripple effect. Welcome to episode number nine. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm a fitness and nutrition coach helping people have fun, keep fit, and reach their goals while they're at it with my online program, The Sweat Effect. I can honestly tell you, I have no idea how I came across Amy's story. One day, a year or two ago, I found myself mesmerized by the live Q&A sessions she was doing on Facebook to help educate people on cancer and her battle with it. As I listened, there were so many things I had no idea about, and as my family prepared themselves for my dad's own fight with it, I even still found myself Googling too many things that I didn't have the answers for. So thank you, Amy, for coming on the show and sharing your journey that you have probably told thousands of times by now. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm always more than thrilled to talk about this topic, so thank you so much. So I guess we'll just start out... And you can give me a little background about yourself, kind of what you do and what your butterfly effect was, because obviously life has taken you down a different route than you probably anticipated after you graduated. Yeah, definitely. So um, so I guess it started really shortly after I turned 30 years old. So this was um, the end of the summer of 2016. Um, my husband and I were preparing for our wedding. So we had a wedding in September, beautiful, and then had this dream honeymoon where we went to Italy and Greece and did exactly what you do in Italy and Greece. You eat all the pizza and drink all the wine. So that's what we did for two weeks. And then we came back. I noticed my weight had gone up. Not a big surprise. Both of us are competitive athletes and my husband's very big into nutrition. So it's something that we value a lot. But when my weight didn't start coming back down, even after getting to my normal eating habits, I started to think something was up. So uncharacteristic of myself, I actually went to my family doctor really quickly, um, to which she 
acted really quickly as well. She sent me for an ultrasound right away. Um, and I, within a week, probably found out that I had a tumor on my ovary the size of a football. So it measured about 21 by 10 centimeters. And it's so shocking because that's like people will say, well, how could you not have known, right? And so certainly um, ovarian cancer and the ovaries in general are kind of these crafty things, right? They, they do things that we don't understand a lot about and your abdominal space just makes room for them to grow either cysts or fibroids or in my case, ovarian cancer. Um, so at the time I was working as a cancer pharmacist. I was working with people that were fighting cancer every day, Um, but then it kind of turned into my own battle with cancer, and so I took the next couple of years to focus on my own health and to have my own fight. So you noticed weight gain, so that was one of your symptoms. Looking back, was there anything else that led you to go to your doctor, or I mean, things can vary greatly for lots of different people, so What other types of things should people be looking for? Yeah, it's a great question. A question that women ask me all the time. Like if they're getting these kind of nondescript symptoms, how can they catch ovarian cancer early? Um, For me, my symptom that really drove me to the doctor was I had heartburn. I had heartburn a lot, almost every day. Um, And so I kind of thought that I had given myself an ulcer or something through the stress of planning our wedding. And and so when I went to the doctor, she thought, well, you know, that could be a possibility for sure. Um, But that was really the only thing that drove me to the doctor. Other than that, it was really just the weight gain. So in speaking with other people um, in their journey, what things have they noticed? Like what was their driving Mm -hmm. them to the doctor, I guess? Yeah, you'll get asked a lot about like if there's any changes in your menstrual cycle or your bowel habits. Um, And some women will say that they do have changes there and some won't. The most, um, most of the women present with just these nondescript symptoms. So either they get full quickly or they'll have bloating and distension. And I did have some bloating as well. Um, But I think as you probably can relate to as a woman is that you'll get bloating all the time, right? Lots of women do. And doesn't mean you have ovarian cancer. It just means something's not agreeing with you. Yeah. And it can be from anything. It can be some people right. just get bloated from eating bread yeah. or anything like that. So that's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, and you said you came back from vacation yeah. and you, you were enjoying life there. Exactly. And you expected to be bloated when you mm-hmm. came home. Yeah. So you guys are large advocates for health and wellness, even prior to finding yeah. out. So your husband's into, he's a strength and nutrition coach, and you guys are both into powerlifting. Mm-hmm. You guys eat well, mm-hmm. and you take care of your health. How do you think that played a role in your recovery, and how important do you feel like that is for prevention? Well, I think probably the most important thing that I have really taken away from this is that I was a competitive powerlifter before I was diagnosed. So I was lifting weights and heavy weights, and I was doing it regularly. Um, the cardio side of things I was doing like to some extent, but probably a little bit less. And the surgery that I required was a huge incision, like vertical on my abdomen. And I think there was like something like 25 staples or something like that to put me back together. And there was just nurse after nurse after nurse was like, I can't believe how strong you are, like immediately post-op. Like, I can't believe, like, you're doing this, or I can't believe you're back to that. And 
all I could really attribute it to was that I was that strong going in. And then when we go over and we look at some of the literature, especially Canadian Australian literature right now, their guidelines really support people with cancer, strength training, anaerobic training. So both of those pieces, because if you can go into your surgery strong, like immediately after you're diagnosed, you should be hitting the gym, right? Go in as strong as you can and you'll come out stronger than you would have expected. In your surgery, do they have to cut abdominal wall and things yeah, like that? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. It starts above my belly button and goes to X-rated kind of territory. So yeah, it's a huge incision. And so for most people, they would probably be at a very high risk of like a hernia oh, after surgery. Yeah. Do you feel like your risk was lower yeah. because you were yeah. so much stronger when you went into yeah. it? Absolutely. I think like being strong and also being a young age certainly helped me. I think on the flip side, though, I also get asked a lot after surgery, like how I got back into strength training. Because I've since been to a national level competition as an athlete after surgery and after cancer. And so people will ask me that a lot because there's different, physicians say different things, physios say different things. And for me, I let my body and myself direct that recovery. I never think that holding your body still or being stationary is ever a good thing. You should always be doing something no matter what it is. And so for me, immediately post-op, even though I could put 330 pounds on my back, I was doing like assisted squats with a wall because, hey, you still have to sit on the toilet even when you're post-op. And so those were the types of things I was doing. And if I ever had any pain or anything like that, I would back off. But I didn't adhere to this. You hear a lot like you have to wait six weeks before you start exercising. Like that wasn't me. I still needed to get out of bed. I still needed to get into the bathtub, like things like that. So um, for me, I really let my body guide my recovery. So as you were going through your treatments and whatnot, what would you say was the best thing that you did for yourself during that time? It's so tough. Like treatments for cancer can really vary between people. Like the treatment I had was very intense and condensed. Um, so really for me, it was just these spurts of intense treatment where you pretty much did have to go quiet as a person. So I would have treatments every three weeks and it would be five days of treatment. So Monday to Friday followed by the next week where I literally would have a hard time getting into the bathtub. Like I would have a hard time finding the energy to get into the bathtub. And then the week following, it would be a week of fresh air and back to normal life. And then you'd start all over again. So for me, an important part was like the mental aspect of it, to be able to keep going and to endure. And there were certainly days where you kind of wonder if you'll ever not be tired again. I think we all have those days, but where you're wondering, oh man, am I ever going to feel like I have energy ever again? And so how I got through that treatment is I kind of turned to the online community for support. I tried to reach out to support in our city, which is of a reasonable size, but I found the support groups there were really people that were 20 or 30 years older than me. And I just couldn't relate to where they were in life. They were more financially stable. They were stable in their careers or retired. They had adult children to care for them. Whereas I was more of the idea of 
what happens to my student loan if I actually pass away? <laughs> like, does my husband have to pay for that or does it just go away? Like, these are the questions I had, right? So they really varied. So I turned to the online community where I could connect with survivors my age that had those same types of questions. Um, yeah, that's, it's very, and my dad's going to listen to this and he's going to be like, that's his biggest thing. He's so tired. So he does yeah. his treatment on the weekend and he gets, um, so for a week, yeah. it, he's like, absolutely exhausted but he's had some other like did you have some other um besides extreme exhaustion anything else that was going on like I know um the obviously he's older but Mm -hmm. um the bones in his jaw and stuff he'll be eating and he'll be like oh Mm -hmm. I just pulled out part of my jaw and we're like oh boy (laughs) that's intense yeah did you have other side effects from the chemo yeah definitely I I just want to acknowledge here that you know your dad and I have the similarity of being fatigued but that's the number one symptom that people with cancer have people think it's nausea and vomiting it's not yeah no he his isn't that either Mm -hmm. um canker sores yeah is really bad I don't know if that was one of yours definitely I was fortunate because uh, I'm a pharmacist so I understand the drug therapy really well and I'm not one to take a lot of medications personally um but when I was going through chemo boy I was hitting every type of med that would help me get through that a little bit better um so I certainly did have some of the things you're mentioning like some mouse sores, but like my nausea was very well controlled, even though I was on a type of chemo where you would anticipate someone to be very nauseated. What he has said, he's like, I take the the medications that they say for like the nausea and stuff. He's like, mm-hmm. I don't feel nauseous. So I assume that they're yeah. working and everything. That's beautiful, right? And then as healthcare practitioners, we're like, we've done our job here, right? If you're not nauseous and you're able to just cope with that symptom, and then maybe these other ones are breaking through, you still think, wow, I've like, I've succeeded here. And how long were your treatments for? How long did you have to go? Because you you did like a week every three mm-hmm. weeks? So I did four cycles. So I went from, I started right before Christmas of 2016, and then I finished up at the end of March. And did you know how long it was going to, or was it just, they said, we're going to do four treatments. So you kind of had that end goal in mind? That's exactly, um, that's exactly right. So for my type of cancer, I had a large tumor that could be operated on. So they were able to remove it. So that was done first. And then after that operation was done, technically I was cancer free. But the issue is, is that even after surgery, you're worried about these microscopic amounts of cancer that remain in your body. So for me, there's good literature to support that four cycles, just this set amount would give me good outcomes long term. Um, But for other people who can't have surgery, like maybe it's wrapped around a vital organ or it's just not the type of cancer you can operate on, they might have to continue to receive treatments indefinitely or until this, their scans show there's no more cancer, which I can imagine is a very different mental battle than what I went through. Yeah. And I'm sure that it just kind of kept you pushing through those mm-hmm. hard times when you were so tired knowing, okay, only two treatments Definitely. Left, only one treatment left. Definitely. I also did something too, like throughout my treatment, um, so sorry, I'll back up. When I was first diagnosed, I was working on a pediatric oncology team of healthcare professionals, so kids with cancer. And so there were physicians, nurses, social workers, and I was really close with all of those professions. We had a small team and we were quite, uh, I was quite close with all of them. 
And the social worker we had on the pediatric team, I actually requested to adopt her as my own social worker. Um, Even though she worked in pediatrics, I mean, she can still work in, you know, someone who's not so pediatric. (laughs) Um, So I actually started with her getting counseling and advice right at the start of my treatment, which is huge. And I think a lot of people neglect that. Um, But this is a trauma you're going to go through. Um, and there's going to be residual effects from that trauma. So what she suggested for my treatment was to have some way to signify every cycle that I accomplish. So I actually have a set of rings that I wear that's four rings, one for every cycle of my chemo. I remember you talking about mm-hmm. this in one of your, yes, yeah. I loved this. Yeah. So if, I mean, it doesn't have to be rings. It could be anything, right? And so whatever way you can signify like that this is what you're getting through and this is what you're accomplishing will hopefully help you mentally get through it. Yes. I think that that was such a great idea. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that I remember you talking about were things not to say Mm -hmm. to cancer patients. So tell me in your journey, what are the things? Because... I probably still oh, say Oh, everyone the wrong does, things. right? Yeah. And it's how do you know, right? But like people are well-intentioned and I always start off with that. Like if you're well-intentioned and you actually are genuine with a person, they're not going to fly off the handle cuz you said the wrong word, right? So I, I always start with that. Like just be good-intentioned um with things and you'll you'll be fine. Um it's it's interesting because so many people are curious about what not to say, right? Because they don't know. And you're in this kind of awkward situation where you're not sure if you should say anything at all. And if you do say something, what it is you should say. Um, so that's usually where I start is to discourage people from remaining silent. Um, it is like a big part of your life. So it would be like ignoring any big part of someone's life that you know, right? So like ignoring a job promotion or or like an engagement or a new car, like anything like that, right? Um, so I just encourage people to just acknowledge it, even if it's just in the simplest way. Um, what I usually suggest is to just say something like, uh, I, I heard about your you getting diagnosed or I hear, heard about the bad news and I'm so absolutely sorry. That's such a shit thing to happen to you because that's the truth, Right. Um, I feel like on the flip side, people will often be like, stay positive or like, just look on the bright side. And then the person that's diagnosed is like, oh, like I can't even talk to you, right? Because I just can't get to that place. I know. And that is definitely something that words of those words have come out of our mouth. And totally. I'm sure my dad is wanting to tell me to <laughs> F off. But I also say too, if somebody is in like a bad place with yeah. something yeah. and like really dwelling on it. Yeah. That's not going to help make the situation any better. Absolutely. And the one thing that and I'm sure that you've talked about this a lot mm-hmm. too is that the positivity factor more people probably got through their battle. Absolutely. Stay, trying to stay positive Absolutely. and yes there are the lows for sure rather than always being on the negative side of things. Absolutely. I totally agree. And and that's who I that's kind of who I am as a person even before is that I'm not so much a person that's like why me? Why did this happen to me? I don't know if I've ever thought that throughout my treatment or even now. 
I, I'm the type of person that kind of sees everything as this opportunity. So me being diagnosed and having so much knowledge about cancer already was really just an opportunity for me to grab people's attention and highlight what people are going through and kind of highlight how we can change, you know, as a group. Um, so that I totally agree. I think the issue with people who are maybe an, in a lower state of mood or depressed after their um, diagnosed is that we can't change that based on saying like, you know, look on the bright side, like that's not going to change people. And like, they need to come to their own realization. Um, so that's kind of where I, I kind of sit in that kind of realm. Yeah. And mm. you use your voice to advocate mm. and help people. And, you know, you could have gone and just taken your path, mm -hmm. gone to your treatments, mm -hmm. overcome it, and then not spread any awareness or anything about it. Yeah. So maybe that was the why. Yeah, no, it's huge for me. Like, it was just such a great opportunity to do something that was different. And I still think that even because I still continue to advocate and speak on behalf of people with cancer. And so I still have that state of mind when I'm approaching things is that, it's really just all what can I do to put something out there that people haven't seen before and so maybe that they'll pay a bit more attention to I, I don't want to say like this group of people who have cancer because like really we have all been affected by it so we're all going to come into contact if it's not ourselves then our family our friends our coworkers, we're all going to come into contact with it for sure and I guess I love the fact that you know, knowing that um, if anybody else like in our age group ever had to deal with it, you know, you would be a great person to speak with from oh, experience yeah. and, you know, maybe offer some yeah. words of advice because you're right there. I don't know a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, in our age yeah. that have had yeah. to go through it. Yeah, absolutely. I I have all kinds of people reach out to me through social media, um, either them themselves diagnosed, like anyone across the country and across the world, really, or that they know someone who's been diagnosed. And I say, like, the work that I've done as a pharmacist working with people with cancer has been incredible. And I know that on a daily basis, I provide care and help to people, um, which is completely rewarding profession to have. Um, but I actually think that I've helped more people by sharing my own personal story. I've helped more people with cancer sharing my own personal perspective on it as I compared to what I've done as a pharmacist. Okay. So you talked about this. Everybody knows somebody, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, that has to go mm -hmm. through this. So when you were going through it, what was the best thing that anyone could do for you? Was it someone bringing you over a, a home-cooked meal or, you know, cutting your grass or mm -hmm. shoveling your walkway? Mm -hmm. Like what is a way that somebody could reach out and, you know, show that they're there for you? Yeah. What did you appreciate? I yeah, guess? definitely. That's a great question too. And people ask that quite a bit as well as that if they know someone who has cancer, they want to do something that's actually helpful, right? So for a lot of people, that's not send flowers, right? Or leave a card or bring over a casserole, right? Um, so for me, what I found the most helpful is that I had a couple of friends who the one friend would literally just leave whatever I asked for on my doorstep. She would like hang it on our doorknob. 
So if I was, I was really into baths when I was going through treatment. I was like pretty much solely keeping Lush in business, I'm sure. And so she would go and buy whatever I wanted from Lush or whatever I needed, whatever the item was at that time. And she wouldn't ring the doorbell. She wouldn't arrange a time. She would literally hang it on the doorknob and leave. And so for me, it's not that I didn't want to see her. It was that I was so tired. We talked about the fatigue. I didn't know how I'd be feeling that day. I didn't have to worry then about appointments or like if I was napping or or nothing. I didn't have to worry. It was just there when I needed it. And then I had another girlfriend who would um, just bring us our groceries. She knew what I needed, um, what my husband liked to eat because he eats healthy. And she would just bring it. And same thing. She would just leave it there. She knew. And so she just left it. So yeah, and I, th- I bet if anybody showed up and had just shoveled your walkway oh. and left, you would have been like... Amazing, Ugh. right? Like you didn't even know you needed it, but now you do. Yeah. And so that's what I say. Like don't try to say... People often say like, let me know if there's anything I can do, which is kind of like you're essentially leaving it out into the open and now I have to come up with something for you and to do. ask. And that's hard for people mm-hmm, to ask totally. and be like, hey, I could really yes. use this. Yeah, especially when you're young and you're used to being independent. Like your dad might have been like this too. It's like I was not used to asking people for help because I was 30. I had just finished my doctorate. Like I, I was full tilt, right? Yeah. And so then now to be like, oh, I actually am too tired and too weak to do this. Oh, my God. So that's a huge difference. My dad, he is a farmer. Oh, of course. Yeah. (laughs) So my husband will be out there. He'll be like, I will change this flat tire. And my dad will be trying to crawl underneath. Yeah. And he'll be like, can you you get out of there, please? (laughs) Yeah. No doubt. Yes. Yes. No, that is perfect because Mm -hmm. everybody wonders that. Mm -hmm. And people want to show that they care, but it's the same thing. Right. They don't want to intrude in your space either. Yeah. And I think everybody then just like takes a step back and is like, "Um, well, I'll just wait until they ask you, but you're never going to ask. Yeah, like don't overthink it really. I I just feel like if you – if you want to do something, just do it and don't make a big deal out of it. Don't arrange a schedule. Just say like, there it is if you want it. If not, that's fine too. Stick yeah. a note on it. Leave yeah, it on the door. Yeah. And- yeah. I also think it's important though too, and I would also appreciate it when people um, did something for my husband because I think we forget about the burden that's placed on the people – that either spouses or like we call them caregivers. As a 30-year-old, I never really liked referring to my husband as a caregiver. But um, like those people that are really beside you and walking through the fire with you. Um, so I would really appreciate it when either friends that we had would just like say like, hey, we're getting together at the gym if you want to come blow off some steam. Or um, when I was admitted to the hospital, like someone would come at whatever night. So my husband would go play hockey or go go back to the gym because that's what he liked to do. And so giving some relief from that aspect, I really appreciate it as well. Yeah. And he owns his own business. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't take time off of mm-hmm. work either. Yeah. So cause I remember um, maybe he had a photo once yeah. of him working in the hospital. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, people forget about you know, that part of it as well. for sure. For sure. Yeah. Like he's self-employed and I, um, uh, uh, fortunately I got disability leave because I worked 
like in a government style job. And so that was covered for me. But for him, you're right. Like self-employed people, they got to keep hustling no matter what because the bills keep coming, but the paychecks stop, right? Yeah. There's nobody Mm -hmm. to just leave that work and it's not going to just take care of itself. And I mean, I know his clients were probably more than understanding. Absolutely. But still, he's... I don't assume the type of person who would just walk no. away from it and just <laughs> yeah, leave exactly. things as it was. I mean, on the flip side, the fortunate side is, is that if you're, because he is self-employed and his business is purely online, that he is able to then take that business wherever I needed to be. So if that meant in the hospital or in um, a chemo treatment room, then that's where he brought his computer and would set up shop. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it probably just meant as much that he was there with you. Right. Whether he was working. Exactly. Or, yeah. Just exactly. Out or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So I remember you talking about asking questions and how important that is like when you first get diagnosed Mm -hmm. and kind of never leaving any stone unturned Mm -hmm. and I think this is a pretty common one for people like you maybe walk into the doctor's office that day and you are slammed with this news that is so overwhelming Mm -hmm. that you can't even you know wrap your brain around it so what would you say was something that shocked you the most because you actually worked in Mm -hmm a cancer pharmacy. Yeah. So what was something that you didn't know that you learned along the way Mm. that was, wow, that was something I definitely Mm. didn't know about this part? Well, I think like for me, when I was diagnosed, I, because of my training as a clinician, I can see, like you can see the inner workings of your provider's brain, right? Because you have the same thought process as they're working through it. So when they're asking you specific questions or they're looking at specific things on a scan, you know that ties to other things, to your prognosis, to your ability to be operated on. And so for me, um, when I first received the news that it was cancer, I wasn't um, like blindsided, I would say. Like I knew we were going down that path and I knew that's what I was being investigated for, even though no one had really said it. Like people were reassuring still at that point. And for me, I knew that was coming. Um, Then when I received that diagnosis, then I was prepared to ask questions about my own prognosis and about my own um, outcome. So for me, that was like a very unique experience to be on the other side, but to still understand what was happening. Um, Whereas I think my husband and maybe my mother were more like shell-shocked when they heard the news. Now, for me, what I... What I thought was something that I didn't know is a lot of the stuff I was expecting and anticipating, but there's like these weird and wonderful side effects that happen that you don't really read about anywhere or you don't hear about anywhere, but somehow they still are just so bizarre. And so for me, like, cause I had a big surgery and had lymph nodes removed in my groin, I still have a lot of like post-op um, struggles with that. So I'll women with breast cancer will talk about um, swelling in their arm from having lymph nodes removed kind of in their armpit area. And for me, I don't have so much swelling in my leg, but I'll have like severe dryness in my leg to the point where it's, yeah, it's so bizarre. Um, So post-op, I was like, this is weird. Like my aunt was an esthetician. It's like, why is my one heel so dry? And she's like, oh, maybe you put more pressure on it and something. And then my toenail would just like hurt because of like my foot was so dry and 
And then eventually I figured out that, oh no, this is like a lack of really nutrition and fluid going to my leg. And so like, it's not major, but it's something weird that you don't hear about, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Mm -hmm. So here's a question because you Mm -hmm. are very, you know, you're in the pharmacy, medical side of things. Do you believe in any holistic approaches? That's such in a good addition, question. yeah. Like the compliment, obviously, the yeah. medical side. Yeah, that's such a good question. There wasn't really anything that really stood out for me. I think when we talk about holistic medicine, I'm thinking of like all the different pathways you can take and what that encompasses. Um, and for me, that means less like pills and herbs in your mouth, and that means more like. Um, supportive care in your life. So for me, I had never really been big into meditation at that point, And I did a lot of meditation through my treatment. So that was something that I did. I also did like a bit of aromatherapy, mm-hmm. but not so much with the sense of like, this is going to cure me. Right. It was more like um, stress reduction and like It was like a nice thing to have, right? Um, So I think even when we look at the medical field, we could do a lot more of that, that kind of like supportive care to lessen the actual treatments we have to give people, like anxiety-related medications. If you can learn to cope mentally without medication, even as a pharmacist, I'm I'm like, yes, why wouldn't we do that? If you can learn to cope by being mindful – and then reduce the amount of pain medication you have to take. That would be wonderful, right? Um, so for me, those were the types of things that I was trying to do. I certainly had everyone and their dog suggesting <laughs> yeah. herbs and like medicines that will rid me of my cancer. Unfortunately, I just don't think that there's much to support doing that. Um, and sometimes it can get a bit complicated and in mucking up other things. So mm-hmm. they have to coincide oh, with totally. each other, right? Because you can't be having totally. some of your vitamins yeah. and your chemo yeah, treatments. Right. On the flip side though, like I as far as pharmacists and practitioners go, I'm very open to that. Like I feel like people have to direct their own treatment. So if your dad were to come to me and say, like, I want to take this like Chinese XYZ, like I would do my best to find out if that was going to be safe for him. Mm -hmm. And if it was safe, I don't discourage people from taking it. Like you have to believe in what you're doing. So maybe I don't agree. Like maybe I don't think that will actually work to help your cancer, like as a science-minded person. But man, there is something to say if that's something you really believe in. And if I can prove it's safe, then why not? That's that whole power of the mind Mm -hmm. thing, right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, the positivity versus negativity and and your state of mind. And if you are on the belief that your path is the way that Mm -hmm. it is meant to, to deal with it the best way, then I think that that's a great thing as well. I think we also have to realize that people, like people make their own decisions. And I think a lot of healthcare professionals lose sight of that is that when you walk out of my office, this hospital room, whatever it is, you're going back to whatever pharmacy, shoppers, London drugs, dad's nutrition, like you're going wherever and you're making your own decisions. So like you're the you're driving this bus. I'm just here to give you my guidance and what I think, but like ultimately you're you're in the driver's seat. So now it's been a, it's been a couple of years mm-hmm. like since you've gone through yeah. everything. Do you feel like you have a different 
outlook on things? Do you prioritize things differently? Mm. It's, I, I talk about this a lot because when you're immediately following your treatment or going through treatment, like everything seems so different. Like, like, you know, you're like, oh, the sun on my face, like, oh, this feels amazing. And, and you're like, oh, the sky's so blue and like all these things. And so, and what a good place to be. And so I talk a lot about with fellow survivors about like, how do you like grab onto that feeling and now keep it forever? Because the farther you get away from your diagnosis, the more you kind of slip back into the, I can't believe that person cut me off. Like, I can't believe I'm sitting here. Um, So I talk about that a lot. I think my perspective has definitely changed. Um, I would say before, like I worked tirelessly, like I worked so hard and I would just put my whole heart and soul into my profession. And now, not to say that I don't care, and I think that's maybe where people get confused. I think I've just realized that if I don't take care of myself, then I'm not going to be here to take care of anybody. So if I kill myself and burn out in the next five years, well, great. Now I'm like, what, 37 and at the end of my career having to switch and not helping anybody. Um, So I think I'm more looking at this from like a long-term play and taking care of myself more long-term as opposed to impacting change so quickly. Yeah. Like you can love what you do, but like you said, if you burn out Mm -hmm. in a few years, then you're not helping anybody. And I think that goes for everybody too, right? Absolutely. To take an outlook on what they're doing and be like, is this going to be the best for my future self? Yeah, right? So... Like it's huge. And I think I see that in now that I'm a bit more... I'm a a bit more experienced in my career. I've been a pharmacist since 2010. So it's been eight years. So I'm not all that experienced. But I see younger pharmacists come out um, and they're just so eager. And I feel like you're, what's the phrase? Like you're missing the forests or missing the trees through the forest or whatever that phrase is. Like you're just missing the take-home point here. And the take-home point is that you have to just take this one step at a time because no matter what, there's going to be more people to help. And that flow of patience being diagnosed is not going to stop. So keep that in mind and then just take on what you can. Okay. So we you talked about this a little bit. You said you get messages all the time mm. for people looking for support. Yeah. So, and I'm sure this one comes to you a yeah. lot. Like I've just been diagnosed. What is your, yeah. what is your word of advice for them? Like what is your initial like, yeah. What do you tell them? Yeah, that's really hard. Um, you're right. I do get that message quite a bit. Like I've just been diagnosed and I'm really scared and what should I do? And so I'll often say to people that first of all, that I'm just really sorry. And like I mentioned before, that's just really an awful thing to have to go through. Um, and it's definitely not fair. And so from there, I usually say that you have to be your own advocate Um that when you come into your own treatment, like really no one has to answer for what happens to you in that treatment but you. Like you're the one that's ultimately going to be experiencing what happens. So if there is um, an inner voice that's nagging at you, like your just inner, you know, your inner patient that's saying like something's not right here, then you have to follow it up. 
And so I certainly did that as I was being diagnosed. I was sent, like I mentioned, for an ultrasound. And then my ultrasound was booked for a week and a half later. And something wasn't sitting right with me. So then I phoned every ultrasound clinic in the city until one had an opening the next day. And then I bumped it up and got the ultrasound in. And then they wouldn't give me the results at the ultrasound clinic. And so they said I had to wait for my GP to call me back. And so then I I remember the conversation with my husband where I was like, I know something's wrong and I need to get these answers. And I, how am I going to do this? And he was like, look, you agreed you were going to wait you know, I forget what it was, like a week or two days until your doctor was back in. And so stick with your plan. Just wait until your doctor's back in. And I was like, no. (laughs) I was like, okay, goodbye. And then I was like, kept calling my doctor. And then, you know, like you just have to do what you have to do. Like somehow I end up getting my family doctor's home cell phone. (laughs) Someone else had delivered a baby. Yeah, right? Like, yeah, exactly, right? And thank you for saying I'm not crazy. But I was like, no, this is getting sorted out today. And so like that's what I typically tell people to do. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be a prima donna. You don't have to throw a temper tantrum. But you do have to be persistent, like respectful and persistent. And I remember trying to get an appointment booked with a gynecologist when I was first diagnosed. And the receptionists, who are such huge gatekeepers for our healthcare, she was like, he doesn't have time. We are booking two weeks in advance. And knowing the healthcare system, I just said, well, I'm either going to come and wait in your office today for him to see me, or I'll go to emergency because I know your clinic of physicians covers emergency. So which would you rather me do? And then she was like, just hold. And then she was like, okay, he'll see you in two hours. And I was like, okay, great. Like, I'm not trying to be rude, but I am saying I'm not going to go away until this is resolved. Yeah, I'm not going to show up in the office mm-hmm. and pitch a fit <laughs> yeah, in here, yes. but I do yeah. want to advocate for yes, myself. Yeah, and I just feel like you need to do that, um, especially when you know something's, like, acutely wrong, right? Like, maybe if you know you need, you know, you have an ear infection and it needs to be sorted out. Like maybe that's not the time to be so persistent. But when you're diagnosed, I think you just have to be persistent but polite. Do you ever, you know, give them a, prepare them for anything? Like uh, they've messaged you, okay, I've been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you give your, like, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Do you prepare them for anything future that they're going to go through? I think it really depends on the person and what they're um, sharing with me. I know some uh, young women, when they'll speak about being diagnosed and then maybe they're just on the cusp of their career. And so in that situation, I, I will talk about like the pros and cons to sharing your diagnosis publicly because there certainly is. Um, and I don't think we should ignore that there is going to be an impact on your career if you share it publicly. Um, Now, there's also a positive side to sharing it publicly, right? Because people know what you're struggling with um, and you do get that greater sense of connection. But I will talk about um, that particular point with young survivors because I feel like that wasn't something that maybe I appreciated until I had gone through it. Not to say that I would change a thing because really – um, like I mentioned, I think I've had a bigger impact this way than I have as a healthcare provider. Oh, mm-hmm. for sure. And I know for myself, I've learned 
a lot from it as well. And I think that's probably what you want people to take from it now. So although, you know, you don't know me and, but I'm following along with your journey. Like now I am, you know, I feel like I want to, to know how you're mm. doing and I don't know you, but yeah. this, the fact that you've shared your journey. Yeah. And I think that that's the case for most people. They want to see the best in people and they appreciate the fact that you're going to share with yeah. them what you're going yeah. through. I also try to like, um, with that same thought, I also, I also do just like share the information. Like, I don't think if someone does something totally different to what I did, or if someone decides to go and like, pitch a fit somewhere because we were just talking about being persistent but polite yeah like if someone decides to go pitch a fit like I also will say like I you're going through a terrible time and I don't think you should be judged on how you're acting right now right so like if someone decides to do something totally different than me I can still totally respect that like there is more than one way to get through this so um, I just think that we just need to be like more accepting of the whole, whole, whole process really. For sure. Mm. No, for sure. So kind of last question, all the signs and symptoms, I guess, what things should we talked about kind of what you had experienced looking back on it? You were like, okay, that was weird. What should people be looking for? And what ways can people be proactive about their health? And, you know, is it knowing your family history? Yeah. Is it regular visits to your doctor? Yeah. How do you yeah. pave the way for getting on top of it early? Yeah. So I think what people just need to be aware of moving forward is that like I hate for anyone to become like a hypochondriac and yeah, for be sure. worried about every every twinge or every like little pain that they have. I think for me, the main thing was is that again, I had that like inner Amy that was basically saying like something's not right here. And so for me, I was the type of person who I'm like, well, I know what's wrong with me. I'll just go to the pharmacy and I'll get this and that and I'll fix myself up. Um, but for me, that was like a big trigger. I knew something was wrong and it's hard to explain it, but when you have something in your gut or in the back of your head or that spidey sense, that's just like, something's not right. Like you need to act on it. And so that's my biggest piece of advice I'd say, especially for ovarian cancer or even other type of gynecological cancers, like the symptoms aren't that obvious. And I think, which is a whole other issue, like we need to start advocating and demanding more change and more research be done. So as women, we can be diagnosed better. Um, but if you just have that nagging feeling that something's wrong, and even if a even if a physician is like, nope, there's nothing wrong here, you're just bloated, or you're just, you know, this is normal menstrual issues, then I would still pursue it until you got an answer you were looking for. Um, so unfortunately, I think that's where we're at with these types of cancers that impact women is that you really just have to listen to that inner, inner voice. And I think too, um, like on the athletic side of mm -hmm. things, like there's a lot of times where you're probably beat up from the gym, like mm -hmm. lots of stuff is sore all the time. Yeah. So you might not even think anything yeah. different right. of it. Yeah. I'm going to tell this one funny story. Mm -hmm. So I, also recently moved and so did Amy yeah. too oddly enough our small little community at the lake yeah and um <laughs> I needed a new family doctor okay so I uh, a girl at the gym 
I was, I said, can I be one of your new patients? You know, it's such a small town. I think I already know who you're talking about. (laughs) But she's probably going to listen and she's going to laugh. And I was like, you're going to be my friend also. You're going to be my doctor and you're going to be my friend. (laughs) So I go in and I had dislocated my thumb at the gym one day. So my hand had swollen up and I was like, oh, I just want to make sure I didn't break anything if we can do an x-ray. And a few days before I was like, you know what, my boob is really sore yeah. and just having a, a history of cancer in our family and my grandma had breast cancer yeah. and things like that I was like you know what I'm gonna go and when I see her I'm just gonna ask her to squeeze my boob <laughs> take a look around. I was like yeah <laughs> we're gonna get real get close here. here real yeah. quick <laughs> yeah so I go and she knows that I'm coming in to get my wrist x-rayed and uh, when I go in and speak to the nurse before I was like hey I'm just gonna actually get her to do a breast exam while I'm here yeah. because you know I'm things are feeling just uh, like sore in one spot yeah and she was like for sure here is a drape you right can take your shirt off put it on so she leaves I go to put the drape on and it's just it's just a sheet it's oh. not like with the arms <laughs> in it and I'm like You're like how am I gonna <laughs> I was like oh like do I wear this like a scarf like I was like I don't know yeah. <laughs> and doctor walks into the room and she was like oh you're not wearing a shirt <laughs> I'm like I've got my back. I just turned around I was like I'm just gonna have you give me a breast exam oh real quick God, I was like right we have and like now I laugh about it and I was like oh I look like such a loser yeah. she's never gonna want to be my friend yeah. now I show no up way. topless yeah. for an x-ray yeah now you'll wrist. really want to be my friend yeah exactly <laughs> so she's gonna laugh because that was like kind of how the start of our relationship that's so funny because that's like I've heard so many people say that where it's like I moved here I don't know anyone we're gonna be friends now (laughs) and it's small town so yes we are friends and you're my doctor yeah I said it to her the other day too I was like there is gonna be a time where you have to look at all my parts too and she just laughs you know so (laughs) that is my story but that's about being proactive too it's about you know like knowing your family history and you know is something a little bit weird? Okay, get it checked out. Yeah, and, totally. You know, stay ahead of that and stuff. And I, I think that's like a lot of what comes out of a lot of these campaigns that we see. Like we just came to the end of Breast Cancer Awareness Month in the month of October. And I think that's what we see a lot comes out of that is that, you know, maybe maybe there is, and we won't get too much into this, but maybe there is like a negative side to the whole pink ribbon campaign and everything being pink. And a lot of, I know a lot of breast cancer survivors will have a negative outlook on that. But maybe the positive side is that even though it is thrown in your face everywhere, like on Kleenex boxes and on your oranges for some reason, like that maybe the positive part that comes out of it is that maybe as women, we can be less apologetic about saying like, hey, something's actually weird with my vagina today. And like, I'm not going to really apologize about that because this could kill me. Yeah. Yeah. And then, oh, gee, mm-hmm. turns out, okay, I'm glad I yeah. went and had that yeah. looked at and yeah. now look where I'm at. Yeah. Like I couldn't believe like after I was diagnosed, the number of women that had expressed that they had cysts or fibroids on their ovaries. And before that, I was like, what's this? Like I've never heard of anyone talk about it at all. And now all of a sudden it was like, oh yeah, I had this enormous cyst. It was so painful. And I was like, what? You know, I have a few friends actually um, who they're like, they talk about some of the symptoms and stuff that they have. And I'm like, 
oh my God. Yeah, craziness, right? Like, I can't believe you're going through that. Yeah. And they're just like, but, you know, would tell it to a friend. Right. But, yeah. you know, don't say anything. Like, people don't know what they're going through. Yeah. It's crazy. And then as women, we just, like, keep on kicking, right? Like, we're just like, okay, well, that happened. But now we'll just, like, go about our daily activities was go to the gym pick the kids up and get to work and it's kind of crazy right yeah and although it might not be something like you said that show signs of cancer or something like that but it's just the the pure fact of like and there are guys that listen to my podcast so this might be the time where you like want to do that but it's like the fact that I had a friend one time who was in the city right live out of town yeah and she's like I have to go buy new pants right now oh yeah and I'm like yeah. oh my god yeah and it's just like yeah it's crazy right it's yeah. just yeah. a hard place I think yeah. that women don't talk about it yeah which then doesn't start the conversation right. for others yeah then they don't know what to totally. do either. Yeah, 100%. I feel like even in my friend circle, we've become a lot more comfortable just speaking about these types of things, whereas before, maybe it just never came to light. And maybe I've just kind of like thrust them into that where I'm like, this is happening. We're talking about this now. Um, but it's certainly shift the conversation. For sure. Mm-hmm. And as I said, like, I know for myself, I can appreciate the fact that you opened up about your journey and taught people. And it's amazing that, yeah, you do these things and podcasts and you're in the newspaper and publications and things like that, telling your story. And I do feel like it has changed probably even more lives than you know. So even though that people aren't reaching out to you, that it's resonating with them and, you know, changing the the face of you know, cancer in women. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much um, for saying that. I, that's really what keeps me going is because there are downsides to sharing your story too, of course. And so what really keeps me going is like people reaching out and saying like, you have made a huge impact either in like my dad's life. I've had a couple of people say that to me or in my life personally, and it just makes a huge difference to me. So thank you. Yeah. And that's why we do, that's why I do the podcast. So if, you know, we're talking about things that resonate with people. That's it's that one change that causes their butterfly effect, right? So I really appreciate you sitting down with me today. I know that you have a jam-packed schedule. So I honestly do so appreciate the time that you spent with me and yeah, everything that I like, again, sitting down chatting with you, I've learned more things than I knew from before. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed the episode, all I ask is that you screenshot it and share it on your Instagram story or feed to show your love. This way, the show can continue to grow and expand its listeners. The show exists because of sponsorship, so in order for me to have sponsors support it, it needs to have a following of subscribers and ratings. Taking the time to share it with your followers will totally help keep it thriving. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please get in touch with me and I can give you all of the details so we can start working on promoting and advertising your business. Head over to my Instagram page at sweat underscore effect for all of my insights, experiences, and daily dose of goodness. Until next time, keep on having fun and keeping fit.